0: Okay, here we go, July the 21st, 2013, lecture discussion number 117 on the book of Romans. Now we're gonna re- we're in the conclusion. It won't seem like it to you, but um, if you've been here for all the Elijah, Elisha, Second Kings uh, chapters one and two, this is probably I think it's the fourth or fifth lecture, and this is where I begin to pull it together a little bit. Some of you think I never do that, but I'm actually making the application into the New Testament today, and I have to read a couple of letters that I got. Um, the letters are starting to come flowing in again. We've got one from Janet in Oklahoma. And Glenn in Texas, um, I got a little bit of Sharon from Texas kind of mixed in to it, uh, though I won't be reading her letters uh, um, uh, just for the sake of time. And, and uh, you always boo her anyway, and it, uh, it hurts her feelings. Uh, not, not really. Yeah, she's, uh, she's very funny, as you know. Anyway, uh, both of these letters, all of the letters are perfectly timed for today's lecture subject. The conclusion, um, somewhat, it's really not quite, but it's right on the edge of it, of Second Kings 2. And, uh, and I'm not surprised by that anymore. I used to, when it happened, i go, oh, isn't this interesting? They wrote me this, and this is where I'm headed. Uh, they've gotten very good at predicting where I'm going, and uh, that's really cool, and I'm proud of them. So we're going to sort of start today with these letters. i got a little bit to do before that, and hopefully you'll connect them to the underlying theme of Elisha and Elisha. Hey, uh, important to know that I had a 100 uh, that were consumed by fire, and I have 42 that were slaughtered by bears, right? Uh, so, by by 100, I had two groups of 50. Uh, understanding why the two captains of 50 were destroyed by the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see the Bible say this, the angel of the Lord. Okay, the angel is always who it's always the it's the it is the manifestation of Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. That's who it is. That's the second person of the Godhead. That's God himself. So always know that. But understanding why the, the two captains of 50 were destroyed and Christ destroyed them with fire. And why the 42 soldiers of Baal, these are soldiers of Baal. These are not, uh, that, that the interpretation that your Bible may have that they're young children is not uh, in the context. You see all of these 50s, and here I have 42, and uh, we'll get to the 42 again pretty soon and, and clean that up. But they're all soldiers, and they were cursed. Uh, we have this cursing uh, occurring. Consumed by fire uh, is a curse, and obviously, if you're consumed by fire, you're in really bad trouble, both literally and Um, And allegorically, because uh, we have a picture of the second death, the the, being consumed by fire is ultimately the lake of fire. And so this curse uh, occurs. And so there's an equivalence between these two groups. Obviously, uh, what they were doing and what they said and what they intended to do was the same. They had the same result. Why are people cast into the consuming fire? And we covered all of that previously, but uh, for a quick reminder for some of you who come and go, and this is an amazing summer. I'm stunned that anybody is here. Uh, The first two captains of 50 were coming to do what? What were they coming to do, those 50 and those those captains? What was their plan? They were sent by the king, the Baal king, if you will, the worshiper of Baal. He did not think that God was in the nation of Israel. And so he is turning the nation of Israel into Baal worship. Baal Zebub, right? The Eel Zebub. You see that ultimately this is an allegiance to Satan. So you recognize the Revelation 19 and 20 aspect of this. I hope you do. Real events that that, uh, that picture real events to come. The first two captains of 50 were coming to do one thing, and that was to haul Elisha down and execute him. That's what their plan was. And Elisha said, If I am a man of God, and that's key, if I am the man of God, you're not going to get me. In fact, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. So it becomes a test. Very important, to test. Whenever I start talking about tests, where should I be in the Bible now? Matthew 4, Exodus 17. That's where I am, talking about testing. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And that's what happened. That's what Elijah says to them. Now, Elisha is about to be killed by the 42. And he ultimately curses them. But I have the same thing. If Elisha is in fact a man of God, a prophet of God, then those 42 are killed. And they were. Both Elijah and Elisha were responding to threats to kill them. Very important to note that. And the statements that called into question their status as prophets, sent by the Lord God of Israel, the creator and the possessor of all things. That's what's going on. So now we know the come down now. I say now, it's really quickly, but it's not that I can improve on anything. It just seems to get more through to people. The come down now or I will kill you with my 50 men, is said to Elijah. That is the same thing as go up, you bald head. Those are identical and they result in a cursing. Those are equals. And both statements are blasphemous and both are declarations of unbelief. Now, the third captain, he believed that this was the man of God. He threw himself down on the ground and said, save me and my men. We all believe. Every one of us, we're switching sides right now. He's such a wonderful picture in the Bible. of of the very wicked submitting and becoming saved now last Sunday I submitted that Christ himself the second person of the triune Godhead the angel of, of God God himself made visible that's Christ also had a response to those who sought to kill him in fact they thought they were killing him they were wrong they were not killing him God cannot be killed There is no such thing as killing Jesus. Don't buy the book. Just as a, just as a statement that it's, now listen, I haven't read the book. I have no intention of reading the book. I know lots of people who read the book and they will all write me letters. If he understood that you cannot kill Christ, then I would cede to him the title because I would hope that he would be trapping people into it. Uh, much like Edgar Andrews. There is no such thing as killing Jesus. Sorry. Not really. Not really. That, that is a fake sorry. Get it out of your mind. Anyway, Christ responds to the people who think they can kill him. Their taunts. They're taunting him. And they're saying things to him, if you are God. There's that if again. It's the same thing, isn't it? If you are God, what what do they want him to do to prove it? That he's God. If you are God, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And then this wonderful one is just amazing. He saved others himself he cannot save. That's one of their taunts. That's amazing that last one. Let me say it again. He saved others himself. He cannot save. That was shouted by the chief priests, the scribes and the political leaders of Israel. These were the these were the governmental leaders, the religious leaders and if you will, the most educated of that government, uh, that, of that of the nation. And they are saying they have the, this taunt that they obviously had I I I picture it, that they got together in a committee and they said, okay, we're going to be there. What will we say? What will we say so these people will hear us say it? And we've got to all say it in unison, don't exactly have microphones, right? So they're going to say, they're going to get together, they're all going to stand there, uh, think of them with their name tags on. This is the political, religious, and educated class of the nation, He saved others himself he cannot save. I I, I picture it as a chant. And it's a fascinating thing to say. Uh, We're going to review it in a few minutes. Uh, When you read that, you should go, what? What did they just say? That's really odd that that's what their committee came up with. And they're all there doing it. So we'll do that in a few minutes. Kick it around a little bit. But for right now, the mocking of Christ on the cross has sameness with come down now and go up, you bald head. You would expect bald head then is somewhere got to be at the crucifixion. I got bald head at the end of 2 Kings with Elisha. In chapter two. I'm going to have bald head at the crucifixion, right? Wherever I have a New Testament, uh, um, I mean an Old Testament event, I have to have a New Testament com- uh, compliment. Anyway, essentially, um, the identical meaning. All are said by unbelievers who delight in killing the prophets of God uh, for the same reasons. They they say the same things. And this is what's happening. This time with Christ on the cross, he is the Deuteronomy 18.15, isn't he? He's not just a prophet. or He's not just a prophet. He is not just a man of God. He is the prophet, and he is the God-man, right? And they don't know that. The Pharisees don't know that he cannot be killed. They don't know what they don't know. Remember all of that? The Pharisees have no idea who they're dealing with or what they're dealing with. They're just saying the stupidest thing that comes into their mind with as much rage as they can. They do know what they're saying. They just don't know how stupid it is. And Christ, now he responds. Remember, here's the first response. If I am the man of God, then fire from heaven will come down and consume you. The second response is this cursing that results in a 42 slaughtered by bears. Christ responds with what? The taunts. let so I may repeat the taunts again. I got to find them. If you are God, save yourself. Come down from the cross. He saved others; himself, he cannot save. Eh? just to name a few of them. How did he respond? He responds with Psalm twenty-two, one. Perhaps the most misunderstood. Uh, I, I. I. It's so rare I see a a lecture on Psalm 22 that is correct. I don't even know how to respond to it anymore. But they they mock Christ's answers with Psalm 22. One. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It has to be very much the same as the fire and the bear. Let me put it right underneath there. Fire, bear, Psalm 22. One. Elijah, if I am a man of God, then fire. Elisha, curse then bears. Christ, Psalm 22. Now, Janet and Glenn. I get them out of here. <clears throat> okay, I'm gonna. Uh, Janet, some of you know Janet, and um, so I'm gonna skip the part. Uh, she does say, by the way, for those of you who know Janet, that she's moving to Washington. Getting away from uh, Oklahoma, um, and Dan, she thinks uh, will retire sometime in August of 2014. Uh, he's tired of doing uh, uh, tiring of doing foundation work, I'm sure, like me and Bill. And I, I you know he is you know is a chemist. so and then uh, chemical engineer. Anyway, this uh, is what she said. On other news, we have decided to leave our current church. As you keep, talking about me, as you keep pounding away at the importance of maintaining the deity of Jesus Christ, I find it harder and harder to sit in a church where Christ's deity is decimated. I find myself getting physically upset, and it sets the tone for the rest of the day. Not good. I find it useless to try to explain what I perceive as error, but it goes in one ear and out the other. Nothing changes and nothing is taught with any substance. I come with a plate the size of a platter and I am lucky to get a crumb, if that. You, Steve, are to blame. <laughs> I thank God for your teachings being available on the internet. Studying scripture under your tutelage has taught me to ask questions of every word and to search for the answer in scripture. I have suggested to Dan that we start our own group in our home and listen to your sermons, even if it is only us to start with. Uh, It will be only them to start with. That's true. And, and, And I am to blame. All of that's correct. Hope your summer is going well. We heard it was exceptionally warm. No, it's been this way every... Okay. So, that's Janet. She is finding out that the deity of Christ is disappearing from the church, if not completely gone. Here is Glenn from Texas. Dear Pastor Chronister, in studying Matthew 4, I found myself in Hebrews 4 and 5. Absolutely the right place to be. And he is in the right place to be because Elisha and Elijah is in 2 Kings 2 and 1 and 2 is heading him right for Matthew 4. I know Christ is never not God. And I know Paul would not be undermining that fact. But this bit of scripture sure reads like it. Okay? If you think Hebrews 4 and 5 reads like Christ is not God, then... Uh-oh, the problem is not with the scripture, the problem is with us. I was hoping you had some CDs on this part of Hebrews that could help me with what I'm not seeing clearly. Thanks, Glenn from Texas. Beautifully written, Glenn from Texas. You're in the right place, and you know there's something for you to learn there, and there is. There is. Notice uh, that both Janet and Glenn are concerned with the deity of Christ. Janet and her family discovering a fact the contemporary church does not teach anymore, if at all, that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty in the flesh. I had somebody came to church here for a long time was very faithful. Uh, her and her husband, her daughters, uh, her daughter played on softball team. She came up to me afterwards and uh, said, uh, I do not believe what you say about the deity of Christ. I asked her to her face. I said, is Jesus Christ inferior to God and will he always be inferior to God? She looked at me and said, yes. And I said, there's a lot of wrong church for you. You're in the wrong place. You need to find the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. But you certainly don't want to come here. I'm just going to make you miserable. She believed that eternally Jesus Christ, one, she believed he was created inside of time at his birth, and two, she believed that he would always be inferior to God the Father. Nothing could be more wrong than that. When you're wrong, that is the absolute wrong. You can't get more wrong. You're perfectly wrong now. You can stop trying. You've got there. And the contemporary church is eager to reduce Christ to a created being who is subject to death and sin. Which, as you know, if that were true, that ends salvation immediately. Just as soon as you have Jesus Christ subject to death and sin, you have ended salvation. If Christ is not infinite God himself, there is no salvation for anyone, and we are the most to be pitied. Right? So, Glenn and Janet are absolutely right to to Be concerned about this. And Glenn has correctly linked Matthew 4 to Hebrews 4 and 5 and back to 2 Kings uh, 2, uh, which is where we are. Matthew 4 is the testing. So you see this again. It's a test again. Matthew 4 has the if in it. It's a test. It's the testing of Christ and then so is also Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. So they fit together. And what I mean by that is Christ is tested uh, in the same way it's a purity determination test. Uh, by the way, we, it's the same for you and me. We'll get to that in a minute as well. But Christ is tested as you would test a metal or in this case let's just use gold or silver. Uh, I'm going to test it and see if there are any impurities in it that it's uh, like uh, to determine purity. In Christ's testing process, the search then is to find the impurities, to see if there are any. There is so much gold and much, so much sir, silver, the question becomes, is there anything that is not gold or not silver, if you will, as the allegory goes. So this, the process is at first phase one. His testing process is to see, um, and notice how I said that. I better write that on board. His testing process has phases. It has at least two. Phase one is his life here, is his uh, manifestation on earth, his earthly ministry. So, trying to find out if he has any sin. Did we find out? Did we answer the question? Yes, we did. No sin is found. And once we establish that no sin is found in Christ, what does that mean? It means lots of things, but the first thing it means is that he can be the substitute. He can be the sacrifice. He's able to sacrifice or substitute for all of us. That's good news. So we start out, we find no impurities. Now think also in the Old Testament about them searching for for things with no impurities or any blemish, and put that all together. But we, we search Christ. Christ is searched, uh, Matthew 4, primary place where this happens, and he is found to be without sin. And that means that we have a salvation uh, now that can be had, and he is uh, also, in order to have no sin, as soon as we find out that he has no sin in him, and he's able to be the sacrifice and the substitute, what else do we also know about? He's God. As soon as I as soon as the test results come back. No sin in this man. Then I know this man is God. Now for those of you who were here and you had to endure Matthew 4, how many of you were here and had to endure Matthew 4? Don't raise your hand. Ever in this congregation. Ever. That's always a trick. Three of you, eh, I got more work to do. Uh, You know that Matthew 4 and Hebrews 4 and 5 and Genesis 15, Matthew 26, 36 through 56, all of that's together. I spent a year, I think, in Genesis 15. I'm not going to repeat it again. It takes a year, um, as you know. But uh, Glenn and others and Sharon from Texas, she wrote and wanted to know about the Simeon prophecy. There's a wonderful prophecy in the Bible with uh, what you do is uh, you, it's called the Simeon prophecy, and um, and um, it's just uh, fantastic, and it's also a proof. See, we're we're proving things. There's this proving going on, and Simeon prophecy is part of that proving. That's why I'll include Sharon's uh, question here in a minute. Uh, but anyway, all of those people who are new to our little caravan here, I need to at least let them see how. This kind of fits together for, for today. Again, this proving theme. I have a theme in the Bible where, where things have to be proved all the time. Um, usually it surfaces as it does in Second Kings 1 and Second Kings 2. I have unbelievers screaming at a man of God, a prophet of God, uh, asking to prove that he is in fact a, a prophet of God and to prove that God is in Israel. That's that's the underlying theme, is God in Israel, Second Kings 1. And they say to him, they scream at him in rage, at both, uh, both to the prophet and to God. Prove to us that you are God, or you are a man of God, that you are God is in our midst, or that uh, you are sent by God. Prove that. You have to prove that. I demand that you prove it. And they say, prove it to me. That goes on today, by the way. I get all the letters. You have to prove to me that Christ is God. Me. I don't care if you've proved it to thousands of other people. And God has to prove it to me or I'm not going to believe it. God himself, they'll tell me, has to come into their room, sit down on their couch and prove to them that he's God. Or they're not going to believe. That goes on all the time. And they say in the Bible, it's very clear, if you don't prove it, I'm going to kill your people and I'm going to kill you. That's what they say. I'll reject you if you're... Some say they'll reject. So, in other words, prove it or else. Prove it or die. Obviously, this is Matthew 27, 39 through 50. This is where they're yelling at Christ, save yourself. You prove you're God or you're going to die. We're going to kill you, and the process of killing you is going to prove whether or not you're God. By the way, did the death of Christ prove he was God? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually worked out for him. Sort of. Not really. So, prove it or die. Prove it or else. Matthew 27, 39 through 50. Also, Exodus 17. Numbers 20. Numbers 11. Numbers 14. Matthew 4. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 5. Now, some will say, okay, it's not really a proving theme that's in the Bible. It's also an inspection theme or an unfitness theme. Uh, and I think all three are necessary. And what I mean by that um, is the element of the identity, the true identity, the personhood of Christ is being placed on the table. Is he God in the flesh? Uh, is Jesus Christ fit? In other words, can he... Is he able to be the substitute sacrifice for all who choose him, who believe? Has he been inspected and found to be uh, sinless? So has the inspection process occurred? Has it been performed on him? Has Christ been found to be perfect through that inspection process? Has this been proven? I think all of that is uh, all three of those fit together. And that's the issue of Hebrews 5. I'm going to read it really fast. Uh, just the part that uh, is the most, uh, not, not all of four and not all of five. I'll just read the part that causes most people trouble. Uh, and it's hard. Because I really want you to see in verse 14 of, of, uh, of chapter 4, I have high priest. I want you to see uh, um, verse 5 of chapter 5, I have high priest. I want you to notice all the Melchizedekian or the Melchizedek references, because Melchizedek is in fact Jesus Christ. The pre- you got the angel of God is Christ. Melchizedek is also Christ. He's the King of Peace. He is forever. He's a priest forever. Okay. Anyway, so here we go. So understanding all of that's important. But just a second. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, talking about Christ, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So it starts with Melchizedek, ends with Melchizedek, starts with high priest, ends with high priest. Very important to know that. Okay? And that's by the way uh, the repeating of high priest occurs. Paul emphasizes that all that he is saying about Jesus Christ and what I just read uh, has this high priest sacrificial system, inspection process, Melchizedek uh, Context. If you don't understand that, you will blow up at verse 7 and 8 and 9. Hebrews uh, 5 9. Having been perfected. People say, well, he must not have been perfect. He had to go, he became perfect over time. It makes him subject to time, which means he's not God. It means there was a period of time when he wasn't perfect. That makes the contemporary church really happy. also makes them very wrong. It's not what it's saying at all. You have to define that phrase. Having been perfected. Uh, having been perfected. What does that mean? It's referring to the inspection for sin procedure. If you want to think of it as an idiom, do it that way. It means he had gone through... This process, this evaluation, there are steps to it, a whole bunch of steps. And he had gone through each and every one of them. So when he was done, that's why it's in the past tense, he had gone through the process. And he had the stamp now saying that he had gone through the process of inspection. That's what it means. It's the inspection for sin procedure. Christ was put through the perfection evaluation system. The shadows or portraits primarily would be for you two really fast, the ashes of the red heifer and the Passover lamb. I have to find the red heifer. They're doing it today. You take a red heifer over to Israel, and if it looks like it's perfect, the first thing they do is they go through the inspection process to see if there's any blemish in it. They want those ashes of the red heifer. Why do they want them? They're part of the fivefold uh, cleansing provisions, sevenfold. Sevenfold cleansing. If they find a red heifer that has no blemish, they will call it what? Having been perfected. That's what they call it. Having having been found to be without blemish. That's what it means. Doesn't mean it wasn't ever perfect. It was finally put through the process, through the steps, and it passed. The has that's what it means. It has nothing to. He was always perfect. He can't help but be perfect. It was just determined that he was perfect by who? By the test administrators, hey? Eh? You'd also have the Passover lamb that is brought into the house and and evaluated for four days. Anyway, Christ was found pure, innocent, without spot or blemish, and declared to be perfect, perfected again, meaning to the successful completion of the process, which by the way is phase two has to happen now. That's just phase one. Phase two is his resurrection and his ascension. He has to be perfect to resurrect and he has to be perfect to ascend. That's another story, uh, but uh, we covered that a little bit uh, previously as well. Now note quickly, right next to it, learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Then this wonderful word, and. So let me read it again. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered and having been perfected. So it ties learned obedience, connects it to having been perfected. Learned obedience and having been perfected. That and is very significant. This, by the way, proves his goodness. He is proven to be good. Learned obedience cannot be in contradiction to God Christ's omniscience. It cannot be. God can't learn. He knows all things. He's the creator of time. So learned obedience must also be revelatory, as is having been perfected. His godhood is revealed by his perfection. Therefore, his godhood is also revealed revealed by his obedience. Only God is perfect, pure good always. Perfect obedience will require sinlessness. He cannot have any sin. If he is, if he has perfect obedience, he is therefore sinless and the reverse, which is why the and. That is why the obedience is tied to the perfection. Now, two quick questions. Throw out some quick questions. By the things which he suffered. What's the obvious question there? What did he suffer? Now you might immediately say he suffered by what? By being beaten. Did God suffer by being beaten? See, don't anthropomorphize putting yourself in his position and deciding that he thinks like you. He does not think like us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's a whole lot more complex than us, little tiny. Itty-bitty thingies. What could possibly make God suffer? What are the things? By the things which he suffered. What things? See, this explains the Gethsemane cup reference in Hebrews 5-7. Because that's what that is. That's a Gethsemane cup reference. Where he is saying, let this cup pass from me. He knows what's in the cup. He knows what the cup represents. And the, and the suffering of it is involved there. Same. Now I ask some more questions about this. What makes God cry? Because it says he has tears. What makes him cry? Being beaten? I make him sad. I'm sad. I'm crying. I, I pity myself. That would be what? That would be sin. That can't be it. What does God pray about? He offered up prayers and supplications. By the way, he did it aloud. Right off the bat, you got to know, okay, he does not need to ever say anything aloud to himself. God does not need to talk to God aloud. They can read God's mind. They all have it. So when he's being aloud, then clearly he's doing it for whose sake? Not his sake, our sake. So what makes him cry? What does he pray about? Notice the text says, marvelously, able to save him from death. It does not say, able to save him from dying. What does save from death mean? It means resurrection. It's a resurrection reference. All of this is a... Matthew 26, 36 through 39, Gethsemane, is a dramatic theodicy done aloud for the sake of the people witnessing it. Why is God able to resurrect God? That's the question you should ask. Christ all the time in, in, uh, in Matthew 4 talks about the scripture say, the scripture says, um, I wish I could, well, I'll just read a couple of them really fast. This is for Glenn's benefit. But it's the same thing. You've got to ask the same questions when you see it. Um, uh, Jesus said, it is written again, you shall not test the Lord your God. That's why Matthew 4 comes up again. Uh, and he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He could have said it this way, I wrote, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from me. said... I wrote, you shall not tempt or test me. I am the Lord, your God. Same thing's going on in Hebrews. That's what puts them together so wonderfully. Christ never leaps uh, leaps. Whew. It happened at the wedding ceremony the other day. Never do a ceremony after you've poured or after you've framed up footing forms in this four foot deep hole with being stung by yellow jackets in the face. It's not going to go well. Christ never weeps for himself. Who does he weep for? If he were weeping for himself, that would be self-pity. That would be sinful. He always weeps for the lost. He always weeps for the unsaved. He weeps for Israel. Now, now go back and look at this Amazing thing. Did I write it here? Yeah, I did. Yay me. The Pharisees are taunting him. And they yell this He saved others himself, he cannot save. That's the taunt of the Pharisees. To which Christ responds Psalm 22 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can God forsake God? No. So why did he respond? See, we would really have been happy if he had done what Elijah did and just burned them all, right? That would have settled it. Or the bears would have been cool, you know, but he doesn't. He recites, quotes, Psalm 22.1. got to go back and and look at Psalm 22.1 and say, who says this? Does God say this to God? No. Israel says this to God. This is Matthew 27:42. He saved others himself he cannot save. You should go, huh. That's a great big huh. What's the obvious question? Who are the others? He saved others. Me, I want to know their names. I don't know how many. Who are the others? How many others are there? When did Christ save the others? What did he save them from? The Pharisees know that he saved them. Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees would testify at his crucifixion, he saved others. They yell it out. They scream it out. He saved others and they rush to declare Christ unfit. You see, they're saying he's unfit. He can't save himself. He's got sin in him. He can't be the sacrifice. He can't be the Messiah. He claimed he was God, yet he's, we're killing him. That means he can't be God. That's what they're doing. But they scream out simultaneously, he saved others. They blunder into the truth. Jesus Christ saves others. I can see them holding up the sign. So that's another obvious question, isn't it? A couple of them fly out. How did he save them? Why did he save them? Who is it that can save others? They contradict themselves in their same sentence. Can you see that? I believe that the Pharisees, knowing full well that Christ saved thousands and thousands, how do I know that? Because they're the Pharisees. They had to deal with it. See, for the first time ever in the history of the nation of Israel, they had to perform Leviticus 14, which is the ritual. For the cleansing of healed lepers. There had never been a healed leper before Christ came to Israel. He healed them by, he healed thousands and thousands of them. And they all went back to the Pharisees and said, I have to, and he sent them back. This is the evidence that God is really at a very basic level. Well, there is no basic level, but it really, God has a great sense of humor. He flooded the Pharisees with healed lepers, and they had to do that ritual, Le- Leviticus 14. They had the two birds in the bowl. Ooh, that's really interesting. I have a bowl. That takes me back to the bowl. Where else do I have a bowl? Yes, I do. Second Kings 2. Anyway, they had to put the two birds in the bowl and, the, and sprinkle and all of this stuff, or one bird in the bowl and water and all this bowl stuff that had to happen. And then the, the lepers were declared to be cleansed because they were already healed, and so they had to be declared to be healed. And then when that happened, they got their property back from who? The Pharisees, who had confiscated it when they declared them to be unclean. So he wiped out the Pharisaical economic system. By healing thousands of them, a multitude, thousands, saved from the agonizing, slow death of leprosy. So here is here is the Pharisee saying, he saved the lepers and he can't save himself. They probably didn't say lepers. They're bald heads. He saved the bald heads. My sign, but he can't save himself. Jesus Christ saved the baldheads, and the and the Pharisees hated him for doing so, which re raises the great question that Christ asked in Matthew nine five, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or arise and walk. Jesus Christ said. I have the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Mark 2 seven. So when you say that he saved anybody, what are you saying he is? You're saying he's God. Now, can Jesus Christ save himself? The Pharisee statement is profoundly stupid. It really is. Himself, he cannot save. I wrote a word down to describe that. This is the the uh, this is a regressive, the error of infinite regression. The Who Made God error. That's why Edgar Andrews put it on his book because he understood that it was an error. Jesus Christ cannot be saved. Why can't he be saved? He, he has, he, there is, he is salvation. He doesn't, there is, there is never any possibility that he needs it. You cannot do it to him. You cannot affect that part of him. He is the saver. He is salvation. The Pharisee statement again. Uh, he saved others, therefore he's God, but he can't save himself. Well if he's God, he can't be saved. So now we have to ask, what's he doing? I got to move fast now. Matthew four, as Glenn from Texas astutely connected to Hebrews five, is a, is phase one of the testing process that proves that Christ is who He is. Specifically in Matthew four, the question comes: the test is, is could Jesus Christ solve this lie of Satan that had? permeated and uh, marinated uh, the heavenly host. Uh, the lie being many faceted, but I'll just simplify it. Satan first began saying that there was no solution to free will in God's omniscience. That means there's no solution to sin. If you choose to sin, God can't solve it. It's the one thing God can't do because he can't give you free will and then also have omniscience simultaneously. So either God is not all powerful or God has uh, does not have the capability to answer everything, so his omniscience called into question as well, and therefore he is not God, and there is no solution to sin. What's going on in, in Matthew four is that conflict, okay? And that's why the angels come down and minister to him. How do angels minister to God? Everybody always thinks they brought him a, a cold soda, or maybe apple. Oh, I'm going to try, try banana cream pie. Not Apple. How do you minister to God? You acknowledge your belief. You have nothing to give him. You take you take yourself out of he weeps for me column and put yourself into the he has joy column for me, if you will. That's a very simple way of explaining it. But you're no longer in the he's weeping for me column. That's how you minister to him. Those angels came down after because he says to Satan, be gone. When he says Satan to be gone, to be gone, Satan is begone. gone. Poof, gone. That's evidence right there that he's gone. Everybody got it. And he also solved this free will omniscience conflict. That's the Genesis 15. That's Matthew twenty six thirty six through 39. All of that is there. But that's what's going on in Matthew 4. Jesus Christ is the solution and declares himself to be the solution to uh, free will and God's omniscience. So, a hypostatic union is the solution. Satan hadn't thought of that, that God would add humanity and be the sacrifice himself. Creator God adding humanity, manifesting himself in the flesh, and sacrificing and substituting himself. Uh, and I, I realize you know all of that, and, and I, but please have patience Uh, For the internet audience, or like I like to call it, the vast internet audience. They're all laughing. And we know that Christ was tested further and found to be perfect. He was perfected. He got stamped perfect. The stamping process is the perfected part. And we, and we, by the way, uh, ourselves, we go through a testing process. It says in the Bible, and it's very much misunderstood. He is tested as we are tested. What's the difference? The grade. He passed. We fail. Right? There was never any possibility that he would fail, and there was never any possibility. I gotta make sure I said this right. There was never any possibility that he would fail. And there is never any possibility that we would pass. Does that make sense? Thus, salvation is by what? Grace. No possibility that salvation can be had except that it's given by the one who possesses it. He is the salvation. He doesn't need to be saved. He passes the test. To say, save yourself, is to say what? You're not God. He is God because he forgave sins and healed the bald heads. He's not God. That's their statement. It's a contradiction. How shocking. And that's why the Romans made made Simeon, the Cyrenian, carry the crossbeam. And that's why Christ answers with Psalm 22.1. The Simeon, uh, you can call it the Simon prophecy too. Find all the Simons, all the Simeons in the Bible. Simon, Simeon, the same. Find the Simeon uh, in the tribe. Find out what happened to him, what it means. It means hearing. Simon Peter, who sinks in the water. Simon Peter, who has to answer that test at the end of John, finally gets the third, third try, gets it right. Find all the Simon, the prophet, who sees the Christ child, or Simeon, the prophet. Find all the same Simeon that carries the crossbeam. Find all the Simons in the Bible. They form a picture of the nation of Israel, this magnificent prophecy. And that's why Jesus Christ gave his crossbeam to Simeon, Simon the Cyrenian. And I don't have a lot of time to deal with it today, and now Sharon's going to be mad at me. But... I submit that in all of the thousands of crucifixions that these Romans, this execution squad, saw or did, this was the first time that that cross beam was handed off to somebody else. Because think about them. What did they do first to the guys? They beat them. Hoping what? They would die. It's a lot easier to deal with a dead guy than a live guy. Nail him to the cross. they didn't care if he's dead or alive. It not matter to them. They don't make it through this. Great. And then we're going to make them carry the cross beam. What are they hoping for? Ah, dies. That's great. Throw him in the back of the pickup. Haul him where we're going. They take him up a side of a mountain. No, they never did. Put him on the street. Oh, he dies here. Hang him right here. It's great. great. Saves his time. Getting double time today. It's a holiday. we get back. Clock out. Watch TV. That didn't happen with Christ. He's hauling them up the side of Golgotha, right? He likes that garden up there. He's going to take them to the place where David buried the head of Goliath, which is why it's called Golgotha, not Golgotha. Golgotha. you got to know that's Goliath's garden. He likes Gethsemane's garden. He likes Goliath's garden. He wants to go there. You've got to climb a hill. So those Romans... They're just doing what he says. Because why? He's God. It's a proof, you see. He's proving that he's God. I, I always make the joke that he's taking that crossbeam. I don't know if it's a joke. I, I'm hoping it's true. I'm going to find out. If this is right, um, then somebody the other day told me that I was going to be uh, king over a bunch of cities. And I said, no, no. I'm going to be a farmer. I hope, I sure hope. I'm not a sheetrocker. <laughs> last thing I want to do is foundation work. I'm just hoping. But uh, but uh, if I get got this right, I think he is. He is. Uh, I, the comment that I always make is he's twirling that crossbeam like it's a baton. He's using it as a pointer. He's not weighed down by it. He's God. Can he lift a stick? So he's he's telling people what to do with. It. Hey, you Romans we're going up there. We're going to climb that. He they have to have his consent. The Romans need his permission to do anything to him or with him and they know it. And they're surrounded by Jews. All he has to do is say, "Hey, why don't we take out the well he doesn't need their help, does he? And they say that. They couldn't stop him from climbing to the Garden of Golgotha. He was going to be crucified on the skull of Goliath. And then no one could stop him. He likes that. And everyone who witnessed his crucifixion knew that there was no crucifixion like this. No death like this. There was no life like this. There was no resurrection like this. There was no birth like this. He's proving who he is while he is being crucified. It's part of the test. He's proving it. He's proving his godhood, his perfection, his power to forgive sins, his omniscience. Which is why he quotes Psalm 22.1. Which is why Simeon carries the crossbeam, And it is why he weeps for Israel. And next week, because I'm out of time, we'll do the salt bowl in Elisha. Let's have the musicians come forward.